Well, here we go. We, we made it to the end. Um, uh, fourth talk. I want to thank you all for, uh, while I get the chance and before the questions come and I feel out of my depth, um, but while I'm still feeling benevolent, I want to say thank you for having me, my wife here. What a good time. Uh, you have a, a beautifully green place to live. Of course, <laughs> I, it, the reason why it's so green is it's been falling on my head the whole time we're here. We, we don't know what that is in California, rain. Actually, we do, and our ground never knows what to do with it. That's why we're always flooding and stuff like that. <laughs> All right, so uh, there has been a structure to all of this. Um, so far, we have talked about the biblical origins of consent of the governed, uh, and then the more foundational concept of the rule of law, uh, and then uh, that was yesterday. And then earlier, we did a talk on, or just actually just two seconds ago, we did a talk on um, the gospel and spiritual liberty undergirding all political liberty. And I told you that each one of these talks uh, goes more foundational than the one before. And you should, if you hear that and think, well, you just did preaching the gospel. How can you get more foundational than that? Um, and you're right. That I, I can't actually go to a more foundational truth. But this last talk is important because I think this is a more foundational place for that truth. And so this last talk is more foundational, not because I'm giving you a better truth, but because I'm giving you a different place for it. And you're going to understand why historically. You might know one of my favorite things in life um, is the... The soul of the pedantic, always like, did you know? Yeah, that was always me. That's why I never had friends at parties. <laughs> but um, but, but I love in history connections. It's one of my absolute favorite things, how this person influences that person. And, and you can't. You know, most of the things that affect the church and affect Christ's world are not written down. We just don't know where it came from. And I think about that in my life. I was like, oh yeah, that's how, that person said that to me and that changed everything. You know, I just, I don't write these things down. But you're going to see that in this la last lecture, that th this last life affected uh, the, the life we just talked about profoundly. Because in our last talk, I, I, I focused on the o famous open-air preacher that delivered um, the gospel out in the highways and byways. And there were, there were problems with that. Um, but... Um, and, and because of there were problems with that, I don't want us to think that open-air preaching is the be-all and end-all or actually even should be normal. Um, much less, uh, I, I don't want us to think that, that uh, the gospel needs to get um, out there more than anywhere else or we perish. Um, actually, I want to make it quite different than that and, and, and say that the most important place is not in the highway, the byway, or the Oval Office. The most important place to get the gospel, the most foundational place we need to get the gospel is into our homes. Uh, that's this, the point of this last talk. Um, the church, because in the history of the church, the church has had great ministries going on in the world with families that are falling apart, and it just it, it proves to be weak sauce. You know, if the gospel doesn't go home, it doesn't go forward. So that's why our last talk is called uh, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards and the Foundational Family. And, uh, and you're going to really think, well, how are we talking about our political heritage? But I think you'll see why. Um, so um, again, nothing is worth knowing if, if you can't ground it in scripture. So I am going to give you uh, some scripture. We're going to talk about his life, and then I'm going to show you how this life uh, displays these things we're, we're told by God. So um, pray with me. 
Father, thank you for this time. Bless us now this, uh, this time again to hear your word and to see how that word has worked in our world. Uh, thank you for the textbooks of men and women's lives. Thank you for recording those for us and for, Father, letting us explore how to be faithful in a generation. And Father, in all these studies, would you make us faithful in our generation? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, um, I'm going to do Second Peter chapter 1 at the very beginning. I haven't gotten there yet. Hold on one second. And, uh... All right, it's the very beginning. Verse 2. Hmm. Oh, wrong, wrong Peter. Sorry. Uh, verse 2. Yeah, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Okay, okay so as we begin um, this section, I just want you to know the placement of that word knowledge. It's in the very, that very first verse, well, the third verse, but um, how are grace and peace multiplied in verse 2? in the knowledge of God and of our uh, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then all things pertaining to life and godliness come from his power, but they come through what? Verse 3, through the knowledge of him that called us. So, so twice we're told that word knowledge. Uh, believe it or not, knowledge is central in Scripture. Uh, it doesn't say grace and peace are multiplied you by doing the right thing. It doesn't say all things pertaining to life and godliness come through action. Uh, no, they come through knowledge. Uh, knowledge is the source in, in these two verses uh, of salvation. Um, not action, it's knowledge. A knowledge of Christ. Uh, not, our, not what we need to do, but what was done and knowing it. Knowledge is the source in these things. Uh, therefore, the knower, uh, the Bible studier, the theologian, and the disciple, uh, the the student, uh, is always the highest calling of a son or daughter of God. Verse 4. By which, that knowledge, we have been given, uh, by which ha have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Okay. Exceedingly great and precious promises. I love that phrase. It's not just promises. It's exceedingly great and exceedingly precious. Um, once the cornerstone of this salvific knowledge um, is in place, we, uh, the most important knowledge he is saying is, is the knowledge of his promises. Right? This is the knowledge that is fundamental. And those exceedingly great and precious promises are fulfilled in the lives of those who escape the corruption of the world. So knowledge cleanses, verse 5. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge, there it is again, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what follows is a list to, to, um, to make, uh, a bunch of resolu resolutions as Christians. He says, give all diligence to add to your faith. Oh, 
So uh, we don't want additives to our faith, but we want to add to our faith. Um, you know, make up your mind, resolve in yourself to live more fully, more virtuously, to live out your faith in all the details. So add to your faith virtue, uh, add to it knowledge, add to it self-control, add to it perseverance, add, 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 add. Verse 9, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Uh, therefore, uh, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that's all the way to verse 11. And, and verse 1 through 11 um, are, are a single sentence in Peter. Uh, one sentence about what Christ gives and he gives life, he gives godliness, he gives promises, he gives the divine nature, and finally, he gives an entrance right there into his kingdom. Not, not by our works, uh, but our, all these things are supplied by Christ, all of them, um, but he starts it all, notice, with knowledge. It starts with knowing things. And that's an important concept when we come to someone like Jonathan Edwards. For Jonathan Edwards, especially, above all things uh, that he is famous for, uh, he, is, he is famous simply for what he did in his study. Uh, there is a sermon we probably all read in a high school class, um, but even then, uh, his, his preaching style uh, is not something I think anybody follows anymore. Um, if you know Jonathan's preaching style, he wrote everything down. He read it, and he never looked at his audience while he read it. He just read these things. I mean, he was in the study even when he was in the pulpit. Um, Jonathan Edwards is a knower. He is a studier. He is a thinker. He is a Bible expositor. He is a theologian above all else. He is not in the courts of politics, and he is not out in fields preaching. In this way, he is a quite different man than, say, George Whitfield, uh, where Whitfield was... This man of action, um, Edwards, was a quiet man of thought. Um, yet God uses both and uses both mightily. And I want to see, because uh, there is a temptation, if you learn more about Jonathan Edwards, to say, well, he's rather unexciting. I mean, most exciting things were done in a chair. He's um, like, well, that was a powerful sentence. Yeah, way to go. And, and you might say, well, I don't. What can I learn from Jonathan Edwards? I would much uh, rather choose a Whitfield. But I want you to see. Uh, uh, how Edwards affects Whitfield. I mean, compare the two, uh, and, and you can see that God actually is going to use both. There is that short, cherub-faced Whitfield, and then there is this six-foot-tall, long, skinny Edwards. Um, Whitfield was all energy, all movement, all vigor. Uh, Edwards was careful, thoughtful, uh, very quiet, it seems, and temperate. Uh, Whitfield is always in the crowd. Edwards is mostly in his study um, and gives some time to counseling, but mostly with books. And God used him. Uh, God uses all types. There is no cookie-cutter saint. There is not one form that God prefers to deal with before all other types. He is, after all, an infinite God, and he likes to save an infinite variety of sinners. <laughs> um, uh, he likes to work grace, and an infinite diversity of saints. Now, remember Paul's counsel on this. This is all the way back in 1 Corinthians 12, where he says, Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. Right? 
If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Jonathan Edwards, the thinker, had a very profound effect on this country, um, and not in the way I tend to think we think about it. And I think his most profound effect he had on this country was his profound effect on George Whitfield. The man of thought begot the man of action. Uh, Edwards begot Whitfield. Uh, you see, Edwards uh, took over his grandfather's church in 1729. Uh, that grandfather was Solomon Stoddard, who was uh, the most, one of the most uh, famous pastors in New England at the time. And so Edwards was uh, you know, becoming an assistant pastor to uh, his grandfather, and, and those were incredibly large shoes to fill. And it must have been hard, but he did it wonderfully. Um, his, and, and, and it was through his preaching, but his preaching style was anything um, but dynamic, and it was nothing at all like, like Whitfield's, um, because you know, he, he, would, he, would, he would read verbatim from what he had in the pulpit. It was always very um, uh, bland. Um, eye contact with the congregation was non-existent. His tone was never dynamic. His style was bland. In fact, with my students, we tend to read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and um, and you know, I ask them to see if they're powerfully moved by it. And some of them think it's 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 creepy or, or you know um, powerful uh, because of the images in it. But nobody has ever moved powerfully. And I always make the point that when God's spirit is working, you know, he, he works through words. But um, it doesn't happen that same way anymore. Oh, let that sermon isn't isn't is is doesn't do that to us. But it's not because the sermon was bad. It's because God's spirit is uh, you know, going to work through the living word in another way. Um, but, but here is Jonathan Edwards. He, he writes that, that amazing sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and, uh, and, and he preaches it, and, and it's powerful. Um, it, there was a holy clarity in almost all that Jonathan Edwards wrote. His logic is pretty profound in what he writes. His, and, and it wasn't his style, but it was that clarity that was just, uh, just, just on fire when he wrote. Um, the... He, his grandfather was known to have much more of a thunder and lightning kind of sermon session, uh, but you know Edwards didn't, and yet there was still this small awakening that started in his congregation. And with a small awakening that happens in his congregation, uh, Edwards writes uh, a little book on it called A Faithful Narrative of a Surprising Work of God. And that book actually sold in England, and George Whitfield read that book, and he read it the year he was ordained in England. And so he's reading Jonathan Edwards' work in his, uh, in his congregation. And that uh, book that Whitfield read by Edwards surprised him. And it, and it began to shape Whitfield's understanding of what he was going to do when he became a minister once he was ordained. Make sense? So, so Edwards stoked Whitfield's imagination of what his ministry could look like. And they were absolutely different, the two of them. So later, when Whitfield came to Boston, he visited Edwards in Northampton by invitation. He even preached at Edwards' church. Edward writes of the visit, quote, the congregation was extraordinarily melted at every sermon, almost the whole assembly being in tears, which I think is wonderful because Whitfield writes in his journal about that same day, I preached this morning and good Mr. Edwards wept the whole time during my sermon. <laughs> So, needless to say, the two men shaped each other. 
Uh, Edwards would shape Whitfield a second time uh, this way too. Not only did he really shape uh, during, uh, in that year he was ordained, what he wanted to do with his ministry, but when Whitfield came over to the Edward, to the, the Edward home for dinner, he met the family for the first time, and Whitfield was, was charmed by that family down to his socks. Kids were delightful, but it, what was the marriage of Jonathan, or of, of, um, of Jonathan and Sarah that affected him most. Uh, Whitfield writes in his journal saying, a sweeter couple I have never seen, uh, which is quite astonishing because uh, if you've read uh, Whitfield, you know he spent a lot of times in a lot of homes. I mean, he was itinerant and he, he didn't preach always in churches. Uh, but just as Edwards' um, book convinced Whitfield what his goal was going to be in ministry, so the marriage of the Edwards convinced him of what marriage could be. In fact, the Edwards' uh, marriage convinced Whitfield that he, he actually wanted to get married, a thing he had resisted up to this point, uh, worrying it would impede God's work. But in Sarah Edwards, Whitfield saw a strength that he had forsaken uh, by resisting marriage. He wrote, Mrs. Edwards is adorned with a meek and quiet spirit, but talks solidly of the things of God and seemed to be such a helpmeet to her husband. So... so in other words, he sees all these impossible qualities put together in her. And so uh, Whitfield prays uh, uh, in writing, uh, O Lord, send me a daughter of Abraham to be my wife. And I'm not going to tell about his marriage, but he married a pretty amazing woman. But Sarah uh, really was an amazing woman. In life, she raised 11 children, uh, 11 uh, all of them surviving infancy. She, she managed a farm, too, for the church provided planting land to supplement um, the salary they couldn't pay Jonathan Edwards. So uh, Edwards, by all accounts, uh, was not much in the field. Um, he was in the study. He, he would travel from time to time, and, and she would need to take his paycheck, which constituted land, and then keep it going to feed the family because um, that field was their income. Uh, yet more than being this just incredibly industrious woman, raising 11 killed children, uh, keeping a farm going uh, by being the, the task manager of the, of the children farmers. Did you weed? Um, she was also, in all of that, um, with, you know, I have four kids, and, and, and I always feel like I'm divided into fifths. You know, <laughs> What's that kid doing? What's that kid? I can't imagine being divided into 11s. Um, and then imagining in all of that to, that, that to be a theologian, you know, that just intimidates me, but Sarah was a theologian. Um, she was an incredible devotional help to her husband. Um, there's wonderful things to read, you know, that, that you can imagine she's folding laundry, but she writes that her soul, quote, did, as it were, swim in the rays of God's love like a moat swimming in the beams of the sun that come through my window. I mean, she'd be going in 11 directions as a mother with 11 kids and, and, and keeping um, the farm going, and then she still has time to write things like this, quote, the infinite beauty and amiability of Christ's person and the heavenly sweetness of his transcendent love overwhelms me. I mean, God, obviously, in all that she's doing, and it was quite a bit she was doing, but God was always in her mind, it was right there at the front of her mind, she seemed to live before the face of God in her mothering, in her housewifery, when she's washing dishes, when she's changing diapers, when she's checking on the fields, when she's taking out chamber pots. Remember, if I tell 
people, if I were a time traveler, I wouldn't go back before the 1920s because that's when hot water heaters were invented and I don't want to try. <laughs> oh, you too, okay. <laughs> so her daily duties included um, uh, so many dividing tasks, uh, but God was always present to her and always present at her elbow in all that she did. And this made the Edwards home uh, just a spiritual force to be reckoned with in Connecticut. You know, like all the best marriages, they, they were uh, more than a, a union of an, a husband and a wife. Uh, they, they were a marriage of three. Uh, there was a man, there was a woman, and there was God, each delighting in the presence of the other um, and, and giving their life daily to each other. And it was this uh, that first attracted Edwards as a young man to his wife. In a courtship letter of Jonathan to Sarah, it reads this way. I think he's trying to be cute. <laughs> it says, there, there is a young lady in Connecticut who is beloved of the almighty being. And that there are certain seasons in which this great being, in some way or other, comes to her and fills her mind with exceedingly sweet delight. He loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him always. And that's a letter he's sending her. But he's amazed, notice in a letter to her, about her love of God. I'm just delighted by it. And perhaps it was this love of his wife that, that influenced his theology. I haven't read a book yet that discusses this, but it's a thought always pecking at my head. Uh, you know, was it, was it his, just, uh, these ways he writes about his wife that influenced his theology, or was it his theology that helped him love his wife better? Um, you know, is it, which came first, the theology or the woman? But what is noted, uh, what has been noted by writers, was that uh, love and beauty are the central things in Edward's writings. And that's completely different than anyone in his generation. I mean, it's just the most repeated word by Edwards in his writing is beauty. And theologians didn't do that in the 1700s. I mean, along with beauty, he writes glory and excellence. For Edwards, words like loveliness are just constant in his writing. And it's absolutely unique. Wherever Edwards spotted artistry, either in nature, in woods, in actions to others, Edwards saw in all these things constantly the image of God's love in Christ. So when courting Sarah, he wrote, uh, this is a letter he sends her, when we are delighting with flowery meadows, and gentle breezes of wind, we may consider that we only see the emanation of the sweet benevolence of Jesus Christ. When we behold the fragrant rose and lily, we see Christ's love and purity. I mean, it's really startling that whatever Edwards sees in the world around him, he always sees as, did you notice that, an emanation of God. I love that. He writes in another place that all things in this world are emanations of God's infinite joy. It's just beautiful. Or that the beauteous light with which the world is filled on a clear day is a shadow of his spotless holiness and happiness and his delighting in him communicating himself. I mean, Edwards and Sarah used all the things of this world, it seems, constantly as pointers to God. Uh, not just appreciating, as, as I might, on a hike with my son, all that God made, but using what God made as an aid to grow closer to him. You know, this teaches me about God. This, this, this sun coming in the window and that moat hanging in the light, that, that teaches me about God. You know, everything 
was moral. Everything had a moral lesson. You know, most people have to repent uh, that the things of this world are pulling them away from God, but the Edwards uh, had the exact opposite thing. They, they were constantly using the things of this world as tools to move closer to God in all their writings. In fact, as a young man, Edwards began a list of resolutions uh, that are famous, you might have seen them, uh, but about this intent he had in life. You know, of course, there's resolution number one, resolved that I will do whatever I think to be most to God's glory in the whole of my duration on earth. Resolution six, resolved to live with all my might while I do live, or uh, resolution 56, resolved never to give over, not in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. I mean, all of his, his resolutions are, how do I live my life getting closer to God? And, and when he would look out his eyeballs at the world, he, he, that's what he used, what he sought to do. Now, for all of this, it's not to say that there aren't heartaches in the Edwards life. Uh, there were many. This family that powerfully affected everyone that came through the door uh, went through it. So we can see that difficulties don't uh, diminish your uh, influence as a family. One of the first heartaches to come uh, was that um, after years of working in his grandfather's church, and, uh, and that church being the epicenter of a, of a, of a small awakening and revival, uh, that same church voted to kick him out for some Betty business over egos. Amazing to lose that much after gaining so much. And there was a second heartache, and that came when the Edwards uh, then decided to be missionaries to the Mohawkin and, uh, and Mohawk Indians. And the missionary project had a school attached to it, and after being there, Edwards charged the headmaster of the school with misappropriating funds and... and before uh, the church could come in and figure out if he did, the school mysteriously burned down, and then the Mohawk tribe that was there left in disgust that Christians couldn't get along. Uh, after that, Edwards was invited to be the president of Princeton University, and he didn't want to go. Uh, he wanted to rebuild the mission and, and bring the gospel to the Indians. Uh, he, he was um, largely passionate about that after David Brainerd's uh, life. But a number of pastors uh, pressured him to go. go. Go to Princeton. We need you. Harvard was already going rationalistic, you know, liberal at the time. Yale was unfriendly uh, to um, the awakening that had happened in, in uh, Edwards Church. Uh, there needed to be one college around here that was faithful. Um, so, you know, you've got to make a faithful college. So Edwards agreed, and he left in, for Princeton. His family couldn't join him right away. They'd go later. But, but Edward's oldest daughter, Esther, was married now and lived in Princeton. And her, she was married to a man whose last name was Burr. Um, Edward's moved in with them. And his two grandchildren were Sally Burr and Aaron Burr. And that is the Aaron Burr that was vice president under Jefferson, by the way. And then the her third heartache, while living with them, they took a small packs, uh, smallpox vaccine, and everyone came through fine except Edwards. Uh, he contracted a secondary infection, lost his ability to eat, and he wanted his wife to know that he wasn't doing well, but news traveled slowly, um, and he was fading fast. So he dictated a note to Sarah. It goes like this. Give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her, that the uncommon union which has so long been between us has been of such a nature 
that I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And Sarah Edwards would get this letter just after he died. And for unrelated physical reasons, uh, but perhaps because what Jonathan said was true, there was an uncommon union between them, but seven months later, Sarah died too. One of Edward's constant lessons to himself and to his family and to his church was to prepare to meet death well. He talked about it a lot. Even at the beginning of his life, in Resolution 22, he said, Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can, with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, if violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert. We can trust he obtained it there, but we know he obtained uh, much of that happiness here. Much like Peter says, he was a man dedicated to adding to his faith, adding to his faith, and to ours and to his congregants. Uh, it's truly amazing how much Edward did, did. I mean, how many books, how many people, how many souls affected, uh, did, did God affect through him? Not least of uh, uh, of which are his 11 children. And those kids went on to affect others. Uh, the Edwards family is just a wonderful sample of how this can work. I mean, in the aggregate, quite uh, an influential family in the history of America. Uh, from that uncommon union came one U.S. vice president, one U.S. treasurer, three U.S. senators, three state governors, three mayors, 30 judges, 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 66 medical doctors, over 100 overseas missionaries, and nobody has been able to count how many ministers since a lot of them went west and, and they're not recorded. It's just amazing how much. Uh, and we can read things like this, Deuteronomy 7, 9. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenants and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. I mean, there really is something powerful in, 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 throughout time from one faithful marriage done before the face of God. But not only does that promise come on to a family, uh, notice that as the psalm says, the cup runs over. Those blessings always spill out. They always spill out. Uh, I mean, to what degree could all that Whitfield gave us have been possible without Edwards? And so, so, so take that whole talk we just did on Whitfield, and, and twice that came from Edwards. But both how I want to minister and how I want to be married. Uh, to what degree uh, do, did the Great Awakening happen um, outside of Connecticut um, because of Edward, Edward simply capturing his family and his church? And then Whitfield uh, carrying it from there. If all I said about Whitfield is true, how, how much of the foundation that Whitfield brought to our country came from a family that affected him? Were they tr were, were truly, to that degree, a foundational family? And by the way, such things are norms. Um, I know that is true on my case, um, on the human level. Um, my faithfulness came from a family, not my own per se. Um, I was raised in a very liberal California household. Uh, we were fourth generation rainbow flag waving Episcopalians. My grandfather father taught Sunday school, and he didn't believe the Bible. My mother told me one time after a sermon that she wanted uh, Jesus' head on a platter 
come from? <laughs> um, I remember a Christmas service in our Episcopalian church, which was on Buddha, and, uh, and, and our vicar was gay when that wasn't even a thing yet. Um, I mean, we just didn't believe. We hadn't believed for generations. But my father, in his own story, became a Christian when I was in sixth grade, and no one followed him into the faith. His life was absolutely a miserable battle. Um, my senior year, um, in desperation, my dad sent me to work at a lumber yard in, uh, in um, Arkansas, and I slept on a couch of the only Christian family member we had in our family. And then it was there that summer on that couch watching that family love each other, you know, pray for each other. They would, they would check in with each other at the dinner table and they would encourage each other how to be better disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and it was there that summer where I finally understood what my father had been fighting for for six years. But he couldn't show us because he came to Christ so late and everyone was working against him. I mean, just six years. But, and I do think it was my dad in the end's battle, but, but what God used was a family. It was a family operating as a Christian family that did what no words from my father were able to do. I just simply watched a family love each other. By God's grace, it caught my heart that summer. And God used that to save my soul. I mean, it's amazing how much how much a faithful family can accomplish. Uh, from, from how it affected Whitfield, how it affected me, this is normal. So I want to make a few applications on this. And I want to make the first application on, on the Edwards and the infectiousness of faithful family life. And I'm picking that word infectiousness for a reason. I'll get to it in a minute. Uh, Peter tells us in verse 8, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that knowledge um, will be fruitful. Now, now let me make much of something that should be obvious about fruitfulness. And it's this. Trees don't eat their fruit. Right? Trees don't eat their fruit. Fruit by nature is something that a tree must give to others. The promise of our fruitfulness that, that Peter speaks of and that Jesus speaks of is not a promise of how you will be nourished. It is a promise of how you will nourish others. When it talks about fruitfulness, that, that's not your nourishment. It's talking about whom you will nourish. And that has powerful application on Christian hospitality and Christian families. For the Christian household is not chiefly a place where you go to get a hot meal. Uh, God's promise is that our houses will be places where others get a spiritual nourishment, get spiritual meals. I mean, George Whitfield was fed uh, at the table of the Edwards. And it wasn't, and it's not the food I'm talking about uh, that was on the table that evening. And George Whitfield was not the only man that was fed by going to the Edwards' tables and coming away just spiritually enriched. Perhaps you know the story of David Brainerd, right? One of the first American-born missionaries to the Indians, the Delaware Indians. And he was so moved by this family that he, that he, well, you know, he died in their home and married into it. Or Aaron Burr Sr., he was a minister, and he was moved by this family and, and sought to be close to it. And then one of his sons married one of the Edwards' daughters. And those are just the big names. There were others, too. I mean, just a line of congregants always going to this home to be nurtured. 
visiting pastors who were coming through town, went to this family uh, and were nurtured. There were the Indians they brought in. There were the converts. There were the children that were in the home that were strengthened by the home. I mean, the Edwards family is a wonderful example of something that God encourages uh, us all to work on, uh, to have spiritually nourishing homes and to have faithful homes, to have homes in which the knowledge of the Lord is felt and can feed those who enter it. I mean, Edward says this, Every Christian family ought to be, as it were, a little church, consecrated to Christ and wholly influenced and governed by his rule. Now, I think that's fundamentally true, and it teaches us something. Most of us want a society that is influenced and governed by his rule, but there's a society you're given to start with. Ooh, is that normal for Seattle? No. Okay. Good. Oh, yeah. George Whitfield uh, um, was good at using the environment around him, and there's a famous uh, sermon where there was thunder while he was speaking, and he said, see, God's talking to you. <laughs> He knew how to raise a crowd. <laughs> but Edwards, you know, he, he says that, that every, um, every church, uh, every family should be a church wholly consecrated and influenced and governed by God. And we want that for our society, but notice in Edwards' wisdom where that starts. I mean, there's a society given to you. You know, what you want to see out there, start here. And why are you fighting for it there if, if you haven't done it here? He means the home... Uh, that little church uh, you have is a great ministry to those living in it. And it's a great ministry to the community visiting in it. You know, something close to what Jesus said, let your light so shine. Right. Now, at Presbytery, three years ago, uh, Dave Hatcher was presiding minister, and he encouraged each of us as pastors to think on the things that I'm talking to here, which is kind of fun that I get to give a message that he gave us. Now, he gave us, in, that was 2020, I think, and, and it was COVID-19 time, and so his talk had COVID-19 overtones that you'll pick up on. Um, and, and I had listened to Dave Hatcher, um, and I think you should too. He's a pretty good pastor. <laughs> and I'm going to share your thoughts. Uh, I'm going to share his thoughts with you because I wrote them down because I thought they were pretty good thoughts. I've only done that with uh, one other people. See, I told you, I'd do anything for Dave. Maybe... Uh, Maybe Jack Phelps, too. Those are the only two people I write things down. But Dave wrote this. People ought to come into our homes in the context of meals of hospitality, fellowship, prayer, and counsel, and find that they catch something while they are with you. And what should they catch? Well, the love of God manifested in the husband-wife relationship and the parent-child relationships they see and interact with while they are with you. I mean, Hatcher is just preaching Edwards there. Hatcher's right. And you might have noticed, though I didn't point it out, that, 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 that he is saying this um, in, in the context of, well, in my California context, he was saying that because our, our California governor had just disallowed Thanksgiving because someone might come to your table and catch something while they were there. So Newsom said, no Thanksgiving, just like the Grinch. And... and, and Hatcher was telling us at that same time, um, and this was in October, that, well, hopefully they do catch something when they come to your home. You know, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards style. You know, they should catch something beautiful from your home. That's the point. 
In another place, Edward says this, the head of the family has more advantage in his family to promote religion than the minister does in his congregation. I mean, I think husbands and fathers should believe this. They should believe Edwards here. Uh, do you want to affect the world? I hope so. I do. Uh, you, but if you're in the world of ministry, if you're in the world of politics, the, the central place that Edwards says that that starts is in the house because you have more efficacious uh, power there than anywhere else. The home is a central place for, for the ministry of evangelism and discipleship. I mean, it's the only place where the people you're trying to evangelize don't get a go away. I go out um, most Tuesdays back in Santa Cruz and I have some faithful congregants and we street preach or we, we do a, a Bible study with the homeless. And the thing that I've noticed is if I'm not chased away, um, people run away, right? Do you know the wonderful thing about ministry in my family? They sleep there. <laughs> And your wife sleeps with you, and your guests come by too. I mean, the people in your home should come to taste and see what a fruitful, word-centered, joy-filled home looks like. Let them see how a husband loves a wife, how a wife respects her husband. Let guests see discipline and reconciliation take place with little kids. And let them see teenagers who enjoy being with their parents while exploring the world outside. Let it be to our homes what, what came uh, to the homes in, like, say, Queen Esther's time, where we read, but the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday in their homes. And then it says right after that in verse 17, and then many of the people of the land became Jews. Right? I love that. Esther 8, 17. And consider how foundational the Edwards home was for all that happened in America after and outside their immediate control. I mean, I told you uh, earlier that, that we're, in talking about um, Whitfield, we're not talking about a politician, and yet he affected all politics. Well, with Edwards, it's even more the case. I mean, he really didn't leave his study. And yet, what he did at his dinner table affected almost everything that happened after it, all the way to, you know, Philadelphia. But notice, it starts in a home. It starts in a home. Now, the word of God to us in 2 Peter tells us that what you do in that knowledge not in politics, not in action, but in that knowledge, will be fruitful. That include, it includes most definitely the fruitfulness of family life. The second thing I want to note to you is in that family, uh, the impact that a life has when a life is lived before the face of God. I mean, uh, Peter tells us in verse 3 and 4, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, and in verse 4, that knowledge we have, exceedingly great and precious promises, and through these, exceedingly great and precious promises, you are partakers of the divine nature. I think that's amazing. It's, it's through knowledge, knowledge of the promises, and through the knowledge of the promises, we are partakers of the divine nature. I mean, just string it all together. What is he talking about in the divine nature? I mean, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards talked a lot about this divine nature, and they lived it. What it doesn't mean is, is, is that, you know, they were made, um, made gods I mean, in a Mormon sense. Uh, our, our nature doesn't become divine. A number of ancients and modern heresies took it that way, and it never goes well. You, it never goes well in a family when everybody's running around saying, I'm God. You know, all your toddlers are little Thors and Odins whacking it out. It just doesn't go well. 
But what Peter meant and what Jonathan and Sarah Edwards understood him to mean is that the divine nature uh, begins to take part in our life. And when Peter says you are partakers of the divine nature, he means the Holy Spirit. That, that divine nature, the Holy Spirit, was becoming part of your life. Now put that in a family life. We can see that, that that is the way that Edwards lived. Husband and wife were consciously, uh, were conscious of the presence of God in all they did. And, constant, and constantly aware in their, in their love poetry of the presence of God in the other person's life. I mean, it might not be too much to say they thought of God as a family member. Right? He, he was always in the room. He was always uh, at the dinner table. He was always company they kept. Uh, and not only in the house, but when they, they walked around, when they, uh, when, when they were with them by themselves, when they were with each other, God was always an observer too, not only of their family, but of them. He, he was observing their thoughts. He was a resident in their hearts. He was a participant, participant in the space between their relationships. Jonathan Edwards often told his congregation that discipleship is, and this is one of my, this is my favorite definition of discipleship, but he says discipleship is, quote, the Holy Spirit becoming an inhabitant. Right? I, let me repeat that because I think it's so good. He said the Holy Spirit becoming an inhabitant. That's discipleship. And Sarah Edwards lived like that too and talked that way too. She said that she lived, quote, under a delightful sense of the immediate presence of God. And she means in her home. I mean, they, husband and wife, were, are both communicating the same thing. Two theologians encouraging one another in the same thing. They lived before the face of God at all times. Coram Deo is the old Latin expression for that, to live Coram Deo, to live one's entire life in the presence of God, uh, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. It's one of the most fundamental concepts that Christian lives need to grasp. That God isn't an idea to be discussed. He's a person we have to deal with. I think this is what, what has made, um, in 20 years of education, uh, some Bible classes at some of the schools I have taught at, just atheist factories. Now, because too often, uh, Bible classes can spend the year talking about God as if he weren't there in the room while they're talking about him. And so they're constantly talking about him and never to him. And, and, and what you do when you do that is you teach kids to ignore his presence as if he's under the microscope and, and you're not under his. On the other side, I've seen some amazing teachers who just really pressed discipleship on their students. I remember one time a kid freaking out in a class because he couldn't um, find an assignment and, and the teacher said, well, God knows where it is, go ask him. And the teacher went to her desk and prayed and no kidding, five minutes later said, oh, I found it. You know, things you want, God's present. Edward says, how can you expect to dwell with God forever if you so neglect and forsake him here? I mean, to live before the face of God is to understand that whatever we're doing, he's there. This is why David sang the same way. Psalm 139. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You've hedged me in behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? I mean, the Christian faith teaches that God is always with you. A mature Christian lives life by that fact. God is always here. 
He's here now. We, we, he will be here when we walk out of this building and he will go with you. He is present. He is present. He is present. And I think that is, that, that's the engine of a faithful family life. Second Peter tells us we are partakers of the divine nature and tells us we're partaker of the divine nature by knowledge of the promises he's given. And that means we need to live our lives before the faith of, face of God. So one last thing on Edwards. I'm going, I think, a little long. but Since, since this is our last talk, uh, I want to give a brief glimpse of the shape of what we talked about so that I can show you where it all ends and where I was heading from the beginning. Ty assigned to me a series of talks on foundational concepts in our American heritage, and I want to explain why we're ending with the family uh, when the theme was given to me was supposed to be American heritage and, and what I took that to subsequently mean our political problems of today. So let me stand back and tell you why we're here. We first talked about the Huguenots and the concept of consent of the governed. Uh, many foolishly believe that concept is secular when it was actually born by looking at how God set up a covenant and a kingdom in the book of Exodus. So the encouragement at that time was to know your biblical heritage and to know the dangers of distancing yourself, uh, even by ignorance, from your biblical heritage. And then we talked about Samuel Rutherford and his work giving, uh, giving uh, word to the concept of the rule of law a concept bottom of all sane governance, but that political concept was born from how his generation and, and his father's generation of churches handled the word of God. So the encouragement was to see the centrality of God's word as our rule, to be ruled by that word, to let it cut at you, and, and to know that when it cuts, it's cutting to heal. And then we talked about George Whitfield and the profound effect that he had on our founding fathers, not through political movements, but from his preaching of the gospel. And we noted that there is a spiritual liberty that undergirds all political liberty, so that the encouragement was to fight for the gospel, for that fight is farming. Things grow from our willingness to get messy and be mistreated. In fact, things can even grow politically from our spiritual battles and gospel preaching. The aim is not politics, but the gospel nonetheless always hits politics. So that's been the declension of our talk. From, from knowing our biblical heritage, that was what I was assigned, to being ruled by the biblical word, to being willing to speak and preach and live the biblical word. And thus we end today, now, with the family. The place where all of this can be most powerfully affected in our world today is where it was most powerfully affected at that time. The place where most things were affected, it turns out, was at a dinner table. See, see the family home is underneath all these ideas. And that home, that Edwards home, like your home, can affect far more, far longer than what is affecting DC or Olympia right now. And your home is the one place where God has actually put under your dominion. You do things there. So our encouragement is there, there, live before the face of God. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for these words. And Father, I pray that they would be quick words, getting quickly to our hearts and, Father, out our fingertips. And Father, save us from merely hearing details, but make these things true. Uh, indeed, 
And Father, I pray that you would do this because your Holy Spirit is at work in your people, uh, raising up a new generation. In Jesus' name, amen.